The 118th Congress opened its chamber on January 3rd, 2023, but it didn't have an official leader until four days later when Kevin McCarthy of California won a majority vote on the 15th ballot to become Speaker of the House. Shortly after, the House adopted a new set of House rules. These rules will effectively determine how Congress is governed in this year, this session. Then there's the debt ceiling. Yesterday, it was announced that the $13.4 trillion debt limit was reached. Now what? Welcome to Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Rick Ryer. We extend a special welcome to listeners of Simply Superior in the Twin Ports, giving us an inside perspective to all of this, plus helping us understand how Congress works, is U.S. Representative Tom Tiffany. Tom represents Wisconsin's 7th Congressional District in Washington. Congressman Tiffany, welcome back to Wisconsin Public Radio. It's great to have you here. Ah, Rick, great to join you today. Well, tell us about your experience during the contentious speaker's vote, and how did it feel being in the middle of it all? Yeah, it was a very interesting process. I think we need to go back to November to fully understand um, exactly how it played out over those four days and 15 votes. So, of course, immediately after the election, Republicans took the majority. And then just prior to Thanksgiving, we had our leadership votes. And, of course, majority leader, whip, all those um, positions. And those are all majority votes within our conference, the Republican conference. It is not that way with the Speaker because the Speaker is the leader of the House. And... Uh, it requires a majority of the 435 members. And uh, Kevin McCarthy got 188 votes, so he got um, a significant majority. But there are 31 of us that voted for Andy Biggs for Speaker. I was one of them. And this was just prior to Thanksgiving. And then after that point in time, Kevin McCarthy was negotiating with the members, call them the recalcitrant 31, that um, uh, did not vote for him. And it really centered around the rules process of the House. There were six members that said, at, at the end of the day, they said, we're not going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. We don't believe he should be leader, whatever. And that played out that way all the way through the process. But as we went through December and as we got to January, um, there was this negotiation going on in regards to the rules because there was great concern by some of us of the rules of the House. And I compare um, what has happened in Washington, D.C., to my experience in the state legislature, where I could introduce an amendment on the floor of the House or the Senate, whichever body I was in at the time, I could always introduce an amendment to change a bill. Well, we had closed rules over the last couple Congresses where you couldn't offer an amendment from the floor. I believe we need more openness, and that's something I was really supporting. And also, um, we have a single subject um, provision that was in there, preventing bills from becoming Christmas trees. And there were a variety of other things that were put in there. Now, I ultimately, on Christmas Eve, called Kevin McCarthy and I said, I'm an, I will vote for you because I, I thought I saw the changes happening that um, I expected in order for him to be able to get my vote on those rules changes. There was a group of 20 that said, no, we're not good enough yet. And it was those 20 that um, um, basically caused the process to uh, uh, last over the course of four days and 15 votes. And by the way, I support their efforts and what they did to get a much better rule package for the House of Representatives. And if I could add one more um, point on this issue, this is really good for both Republicans and Democrats. 
um, that are in the House of Representatives. This empowers all 435 members. You now can go to the floor of the House and introduce an amendment. If you choose to be more um, involved with the actions of the House of Representatives in this coming session of Congress, you're going to be able to do that, unlike the last number of sessions of Congress. Okay, so you did say, uh, you were quoted as saying that that we'll create a more open, transparent, and accountable House of Representatives. How? What are some of the additional things that make that happen? For example, uh, allowing a single member to propose what's known as a motion to vacate the chair. Yeah, so that was one of the things, and, and that was really a big focus, especially by the pundits. They were really focused on this motion to vacate. Um, that had So what that is is a single member can go to the uh, floor of the House, and they can provide a resolution that um, to vacate the Speaker's um, uh, chair. And if a majority of the members vote to vacate the chair, then that Speaker is gone. And then you have a new election for a Speaker. I mean, it is a, uh, it's kind of the nuclear option um, to do something like that. But that has been in place throughout our history until 2018. What was misunderstood by some of the public, but including some of our members, they were like, why would we go back to doing something that was done back in the 1800s? Well, it wasn't just the 1800s. This has been in place all the way until Nancy Pelosi became Speaker in 2019 for her second stint as Speaker. She got the motion to vacate out of the rules. And we said, we want to make sure that we have that accountability provision in there. Um, so I actually think that that doesn't end up being as big a deal, though it got a lot of focus. I think some of the other provisions in there were uh, much more important. Yesterday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told congressional leaders that the U.S. has hit the debt limit uh, or the amount of debt it can issue to fulfill its obligations, prompting what she called extraordinary measures that will allow the country to avoid a catastrophic default for at least the next few months. House Republicans have said that they will not raise the borrowing limit unless President Biden agrees to steep cuts in federal spending. The president has said he will not negotiate conditions for a debt limit increase, arguing that lawmakers should lift the cap with no strings attached to cover spending that previous Congresses authorized. What's the next step in resolving the issue? So um, I hope that negotiation will go on. I hope President Biden and his administration will negotiate this because um, we do not have a revenue problem at the federal level. There is more money coming in now than ever in the history of the United States. Our government has a spending problem. And if we don't get control of this, I mean, I find it rather ironic when I hear from some on the other side of the aisle, they say, there's going to be this default, and it's the first time in history that anything like this would happen. The good faith and credit of the United States is in jeopardy. Well, the good faith and uh, uh, credit of the United States is in jeopardy every time we raise the debt limit. As we drive America deeper and deeper into debt, at some point, if this doesn't get turned around, you're going to have a default. And I, I um, would equate this to a family budget. You know, a family that would continue the deficit spending, at some point, those creditors are going to say, you got to pay up. It can't go on forever. And it's the same thing here. It cannot go on forever. And 
Um, I believe that this is a great opportunity for us in Congress to go back and review some programs that uh, perhaps have outlived their usefulness or perhaps they don't need as much money as they should have or that they are getting. Let's go back and review some of those and let's spend within the taxpayer's means. How will this, if this goes into default, how will this affect Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid? Well, first of all, we do not need to go into default because the first things that should be paid for, and this is something that's being missed by um, some that I, are misleading the public, let's pay Social Security and Medicare first. Let's pay our um, debt service. Pay those things first, and then we go to the rest of the of what is going on. And we can go to the discretionary spending. And I believe the proposal that we have out there at this point just takes spending back to the 2022 levels. And um, let's take it back to those 2022 levels. Um, we had a blowout of spending, as everybody knows, as a result of the pandemic response. There were trillions of dollars that were spent. We've went from what? $10 trillion in indebtedness a decade ago, now to nearly $32 trillion. I mean, at some point, we have to get control of it, and now would be a good time to do it. This does not have to jeopardize Social Security, Medicare, those things that the American people are counting on. We can do this via discretionary spending um, it, it, and just capping that spending. We have an email from Eric, and he asks uh, if you the assumption is that you're serious about cutting Social Security. Uh, we don't have to cut Social Security. We don't have to cut Social Security or Medicare. Um, that is just simply not necessary. Mm -hmm. You go to the discretionary spending. That's where we can get it. Once again, think about the trillions of dollars that were authorized during the pandemic, and um, we can um, get control of spending just by not reauthorizing some of that spending. That excuse me, that has nothing to do with Social Security or Medicare. We can continue for people to get, um, to get what they deserve having paid into that system for decades for many people um, during their working lives. One of the things, uh, Congressman, you campaigned on was r related to the 87,000 additional IRS auditors. And you supported uh, just cutting that out and... Uh, Right now, that's pretty much what is being done with the House of Republicans on the floor at this point in time. Do you still fully support that, uh, is to repeal funding for the 87,000 IRS agents and their support staff? If, if you are, why, do you can, why is that? Sure. So after the speaker vote and after the rules vote, um, the first vote that we took was to um, remove the funding for 87,000 additional IRS agents, basically doubling the size of the IRS. First of all, I don't know where they're going to get the people. All you got to do is talk to employers <laughs> right here uh, as we sit in a studio here in Wausau, and uh, they'll tell you um, darn hard to get people. So first of all, I don't know where they're going to get them. But also, I don't think it's necessary. And um, this came up multiple times uh, this week um, uh, when I was doing listening sessions. And the thing I emphasize to people is that um, I don't believe we should get into this binary choice of do we have 87,000 more IRS agents or do we not have more uh, 87,000 IRS agents? Let's simplify the tax code. 
And you won't need all of those IRS agents. And you'll make the system much more fair to people. I think there's a different approach that we should take in regards to this. So I did vote to uh, remove funding. And that bill now goes to the Senate. I suspect Senator Schumer, as the majority leader, is probably not going to bring that up. But I think it's a really good message to the American people. And the thing that I heard in a couple of my listening sessions, people are like, well, we have to go after those rich people that aren't paying their fair share of taxes. The reason those rich people are not paying their fair share of taxes is because of the tax code. Because it is so complex, because of all the loopholes that are out there, that's why they're not paying more in taxes, and that's why we should simplify it. That will be one of the ways in which they can pay more money. But make no doubt about it, the wealth in America is contained in the middle class, whether it's people's homes, their savings, their retirement accounts, whatever the case may be. That is where the true wealth is. And I can tell you that having 87,000 more IRS agents, that's who they're going to go after. And in particular, they are going to go after small business people. And that is not the direction that we should be going. You mentioned the Senate. What does the balance of power between the House and the Senate look like right now? And do you feel that uh, we can get anything done? In, uh, in far than as far as the numbers, yeah. I mean, well, this, the balance, uh, working with bills on the on House floor, and then how they get to the Senate, whether they pass or not. Well, um, that story is going to be written over the next two years. I can't predict <laughs> what is going to happen. I mean, I think you see it a little bit with the debt limit. You're hearing these stories about full faith and credit of the United States is jeopardized, and you know, Republicans in the House uh, by. Uh, taking a hard line here, we're going to have, create these uh, tremendous fiscal problems that there's going to be default, things like that. That is not necessary for that to happen. Um, set aside the scare stories. Let's spend within the taxpayer's means. I think that's the kind of dynamic that you're going to see as we go forward. You're listening to Congressman Tom Tiffany on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're welcome to join the conversation as well. Our number is 800 780 9742. You can also send an email to ideas at wpr.org. I'm Rick Ryer. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Thanks for joining us on Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Rick Ryer. U.S. Representative Tom Tiffany is with us today. What would you like to know about how Congress works or do you have a concern in the 7th District that you would like our congressmen to know about? Email us at 8ideas at wpr.org or join us by phone. That number is 800-780-9742. Congressman, during the last session of Congress, you were working on a crime omnibus bill. What's the status of the bill right now? Um, and do you mean specifically a bill that I was working on? Um if the bill you're referring to is the Pro- Prosecutors Should Prosecute Act? That is correct. Yeah. Um, so that bill was actually pulled from the floor last week. There were some members, um, um, in particular from the right, that were that have concerns about the bill and uh, that the federal government getting involved with crime fighting at the state and local level. Because um, um, adjudicating crime is largely a state and local um, responsibility. And I agree with those sentiments greatly. Uh, the only thing is that we do send federal dollars to the states to help fight crime via various programs. 
And I believe those dollars should be used appropriately. And all we, were, are, all we are asking for in the bill prosecutors should prosecute is for them to share the statistics of what they're doing with that money. We want to know how many people are they prosecuting, what are their conviction rates, things like that. Just provide us the data because we want to make sure. We're, we hear about the woke prosecutors that are across the country. We saw one that was removed from office out in San Francisco where they are no longer fighting crime. And we see crime continue to increase in cities across America, and in particular in cities across America, it is not getting better. Some of those prosecutors are not dealing with especially violent crime as they should to, as they should. We want to see the data behind that to see if they're using the money that the taxpayers of the United States are sending to them, that they're using it appropriately. So right now that bill is pulled. I'm hoping at some point we can move it. We have an email from Martha in Menominee. She's wondering what your feelings are about what happened on January 6th of 21 and if your time in Congress has changed how you've seen those events. Um, so certainly my time in Congress has uh, changed how I view those events. The January 6th committee is done, and uh, they've issued their report. And um, uh, I, I think it was a lost opportunity. So as I've consistently said, I had no problem having a committee that is reviewing uh, the events of January 6th of 2021. But let's make sure we give all the information. So here's some of the information that was not provided. All of the uh, communications from Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office on January 5th and 6th of 2021 were off limits. The committee would not review them. The Speaker of the House, it's their responsibility, the safety of the Capitol. That is specifically their responsibility. Why should we not know that? Um, you also look at um, President Trump called, he, he contacted the mayor of Washington, D.C., and asked if he wanted, to, if uh, she wanted 10,000 additional National Guard troops. She chose not to do that. We saw Ray Epps in file footage, um, who some people believe is a FBI informant. I don't know if that's the case. He uh, supposedly was a member of the Proud Boys. He was not called as a witness by the January 6th committee. One other thing I would add, we in the minority were not allowed to name our own members. This is the first time, Rick, that that has happened, uh, perhaps in the history of Congress, where the speaker said, we're not going to allow you, the minority, to name members that um, you want to name on there. For example, Jim Banks from Indiana, we wanted to have him on there. And Speaker Pelosi would not allow us to name our members onto the committee. Why would you not do that? You're the majority. You have the votes if you want to. The minority should at least be able to have their voices heard. That's what I've always understood as both a legislator and as a congressman, that the minority at least gets to be heard even if they don't get the votes. None of those things happen, so you have an incomplete picture for the American people. I believe we should have a full picture, and to that point, uh, Speaker McCarthy has said that he is considering releasing all 14,000 hours of footage that has not been released to the public. I would urge, for transparency purposes, to release that footage. Let's, let's get all the information out there and let the American people uh, make the decision. I believe they're fair-minded when they get all information. As a congressional representative, what's the top issue right now that's keeping you up at night? Uh, so there's three issues. One, inflation. 
Um, you know, we see a dozen of eggs up to $8 a dozen. Uh, you know, you're just seeing things like that. Inflation is really, um, uh, is, is really harsh at this point. So it's inflation, it's energy prices, um, and energy independence in America. And the third thing is the border and border security. And of those three, border security, I believe, is number one. We are, our sovereignty is compromised as a country at this point. People are just coming into our country and um, not having to go through the normal process that people have had to um, in throughout the history of our country in order to come in here legally. I mean, what do we have? It's over 5 million people. The numbers are record numbers. December set another record. Was it 250,000 people? I mean, it is incredible. So 8,000 people a day, I think it is right now. So you have a community the size of Merrill or Rhinelander or Anigo that there's that many people coming in every single day in America illegally. What can be done right now? Um, so what could be done is reversing what happened on January 20th of 2021. Very first actions that uh, President Biden took was to um, end remain in Mexico, begin catch and release, stop the border wall from being constructed. Start there. Let's do remain in Mexico once again. And all that does is require people to have their asylum hearings in Mexico rather than catch and release, let them in the United States. Hey, show up for your um, asylum hearing at some point in the future. How many people show up for their asylum hearing when they're just flowing um, to all 48 states, uh, all the lower 48 states? Very few, if any, show up for their asylum hearing now. And uh, so reinstitute, uh, reinstitute, remain in Mexico, stop catch and release, and uh, resume building the border wall. Ron from Anago connects the drug crisis at the southern border with drug use users in Wisconsin. What will you do in Congress to eliminate illegal drug use in Wisconsin? So the number one killer of people 18 to 45, number one killer of young people in America right now is fentanyl. And that fentanyl has went up exponentially um, since President Biden announced on January 20th of 2021 that we're going to have open borders here in the United States. Uh, the Chinese and the Mexican cartels are working hand in glove to pump that fentanyl into our country. And it is, if for no other reason we should secure the border, it is in regards to fentanyl. With it being the number one killer of young people in America, I can't believe that there aren't more people in Congress that are rising up and saying, this has got to stop. When you are crafting bills in Congress, let's say it's this it's something related to fentanyl, what is the process of that bill getting to the, to the House floor? So the first thing that we do is we send it to drafting attorneys uh, that are nonpartisan, and uh, they have a bureau, um, just like in the state legislature. We have that out in Congress, and we share with them our ideas, and this is the goal that we want to accomplish, and then they put it in the legalese to um, make it so it will pass muster if we can get it to the floor. So you draft the bill, seek some co-sponsors. I always try to get some people that are supportive of a particular issue, and then you try to get it to committee, and have a hearing on it. Hopefully you can get it through the committee. Once it's through the committee, then you send it to the floor. And um, so that's the process, and that's what you attempt to do. But I really, Rick, I really try to get some co-sponsors 
like-minded people that are supportive of a particular issue. House Republicans have also created a select subcommittee on weaponization of the federal government concerned about abusive power by federal workers. What does this committee propose to do if abuse of power is found? Yeah, so this is modeled after the church committee for those that are of a certain age that remember back in the uh, mid-1970s when the church committee was put in place. There was great concerns at that time that the CIA and some of the intelligence agencies were exceeding their authority. And uh, the same thing is happening now, um, only it's, do- it's more domestic-related. Uh, and um, in particular, our intelligence agencies, the FBI, the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security. So this will be a subcommittee within the Judiciary Committee that it's set up, and um, it will have members from both parties that will be on it. But it's meant to do a thorough review. And the thing that I would be focused on if I'm on that committee and I'm not, um, the uh, I would really be focused on are Americans' First Amendment rights a free and open political dialogue? Are they being violated? I think when you look at the Twitter files, it's quite evident that that is happening. We need to get to the bottom of how the FBI and our other intelligence agencies, in my opinion, have been weaponized against the American people. I'd like to go back briefly to the um, the, the southern border and fentanyl, if you if you are right with that. Sure. The Cato Institute has uh, said that most fentanyl coming across the southern border is brought in by U.S. citizens who cross legally. Is that correct? I would have to see the data. I mean, the Cato oftentimes puts out really good data. I certainly um, follow them on occasion. Um, I would have to see where they're getting that data. Because what I heard from sheriffs, so when I was down in Arizona, met with some of the sheriffs down there, they said oftentimes that you see these mules coming in who are um, illegal migrants and sometimes are forced to carry fentanyl. Um, because we all know the cartels down in Mexico, they will use deadly means to enforce them getting their money. Um, they pay, uh, you know, migrants pay on average three to $10,000 um, for anyone that wants to come across the southern border. So anybody coming in here illegally, they're almost always paying the cartels. And it's my understanding that cartels primarily use um, those migrants. Now, I'd be happy and open to taking a look at the information that Cato has. We're, we're talking with U.S. Representative Tom Tiffany on Wisconsin Public Radio. You can join the conversation at 800-780-9742 or send us an email, ideas at wpr.org. You were involved in a bipartisan bill to stop sending any of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to China. Why has any of it been sent to China? It's first question. And are there any circumstances where it could be appropriate to send U.S. strategic petroleum reserves to another country? Uh, so I did vote for um, stopping oil, gas from going to uh, from this uh, strategic petroleum reserve uh, to China. Um, and here's what prompted it. As President Biden has emptied the Strategic uh, Petroleum Reserve, we're finding that much of it is going to China and India. 
And that's not what should be happening. Now, I don't disagree with having some exports in regards to natural gas, propane, things like that, to countries that are our allies. I think that actually strengthens our foreign policy position if we do that. But the key is to be able to produce it here. And what's been happening now is we're reducing uh, production is not being incentivized in America at this point. President Biden first action stopped the Keystone Pipeline. Um, we see impediments with pipelines right here in Wisconsin that are happening, and uh, as well as our federal lands, we're seeing leases not renewed, various things like that. I think the important thing for us to do is to be producing it here at home, and if we can export some uh, while taking care of the American people. I have no problem with that because it actually benefits America, especially from a foreign policy perspective. Now, speaking of uh, energy independence, you talked about that earlier, and uh, obviously the, the oil production is part of that. What is your um, perspective on solar and wind power, and should any, of, any source of energy be federally subsidized? I believe in an all-of-the-above approach, and I believe we should reduce subsidies as much as possible for any of those sources, they should be able to compete in the open marketplace and um, take away the subsidies. It's one of the problems that we're getting into as a country is as we shift to incentivizing these intermittent sources of power, in particular wind and solar, they get huge tax incentives. For example, we're seeing farmers here in Wisconsin that are being offered up to $1,000 an acre for rent for their land for up to 25 years to put on a solar or wind facility. These farmers are, uh, you know, farmers typically pay 100 to $200 an acre for rent. We're going to jeopardize agriculture here in Wisconsin if we continue to look at taking hundreds. And we're starting to hear about projects that may be thousands of acres here in Wisconsin where we're going to take food production out of, um, we're going to take it out of production and going to these intermittent sources of power like wind and solar. Remember, wind and solar are only on about 20 to 25 percent of the time when you're here in the upper Midwest. I mean, there's some places where maybe this does work, but here in the upper Midwest, they're only on about 20 to 25 percent of the time. We've got to make sure that we have base load power. And I mean, just take a look at the um, National Regulatory Commission that overlooks um, electricity um, uh, production and uh, certainty here in the United States. For the first time this summer, they announced that Wisconsin is under the threat of blackouts. They've never done that before. And that's because we're moving to these intermittent sources of power. Before we close more of these baseload power plants like nuclear, um, natural gas, or coal, we better make sure that the lights are going to stay on here um, 24 hours a day. Uh, we have an email from Rita in Wassa. In today's Wassa Daily Herald, a study by the U.S. and the EU stated that the removal, removal of carbon dioxide isn't being scaled up fast enough to meet crucial climate goals. And the question is, what legislation would you support to increase more carbon dioxide removal from the atmosphere? Well, first of all, I want to see the study mm -hmm. and the data behind it before I would make a comment that, you know, this is accurate or whatever. Um, because we've been told for a long time now that the world is about to come to an end. 
I mean, we've been told numerous times, and I would take you back to 1975 when um, Time and Newsweek magazines had headquarters that global cooling was going to lead to the death of a billion people by 2000 if uh, this does not change. One of the greatest catastrophes of all time, Paul Ehrlich, who recently, by the way, was on 60 Minutes spreading the same doom and gloom stuff, he's been proven completely wrong on this. We have not seen this come about. So before we say we're going to go to these intermittent sources of power like wind and solar, and we're going to end coal, um, um, coal generation, we're going to end nuclear generation, we better be darn certain that that is actually accurate data because the catastrophists have been wrong all the way going back to the 1970s. I'm going to switch this up a little bit. By the way, if I could ask Rick, yeah. did I cover your question on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve? I want to make sure that Yes, I you did. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask your thoughts about uh, the, the confidential documents that were found in President Biden's residence. Is there a difference between the Trump documents and the Biden documents? Yeah, I believe there's one fundamental difference. Um, now President Biden took those documents as vice president. He does not have the vice president, any vice president, does not have the ability to declassify documents. Only the president does. President Trump can declassify documents. Vice President, then Vice President uh, Biden cannot declassify those documents he took as vice president. I think that's one of the fundamental differences. Congressman Tom Tiffany is our guest today. We'd like to hear from you. Join us by calling 800-780-9742, or you can send an email to ideas at WPR.org. I'm Rick Ryer. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. You're listening to Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Rick Ryer. Our guest today is U.S. Representative Tom Tiffany. You can join the conversation at 800 800- 780-9742, or send an email to ideas at WPR.org. And I know, uh, Congressman, you wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, the document situation. Yeah, in regards to the documents that they found in President Biden's uh, garage, and I, and I think they found it in other places, and he took them as vice president. I, I have to tell you, though, I find it really curious that this stuff is coming out now. And it was done by, it was announced as President Biden's attorneys did this. You know, if you remember, like with President Trump, it was the FBI, and the FBI went down, and they took all kinds of pictures, released some of them um, to the public. But it's just the attorneys. And um, is someone, other than Republicans, out for Joe Biden at this point? It, it really is very curious, the timing here at this point, and that it would be announced in that way. And it wasn't the FBI that did the um, um, did a raid on Vice uh, or President Biden's garage. It is really curious, these events, as they're unfolding. So I, I'm just really anxious to see what else comes out of this. It's coming up uh, in a year since Russia attacked Ukraine. What role should the U.S. have in this ongoing conflict between the two countries? Well, certainly uh, President Biden, is, um, he has decided, and he decided early on, we are going to um, really stand with the Ukraine. And um, uh, I think all of us stand with the Ukraine. I have voted against some of the Ukraine uh, funding 
because I'm concerned about what's happening here in the United States. Is it weakening us? And um, I think that really has, we need to make sure that we take care of things at home first. And I would also highlight that um, the Kremlin has me on their list of um, people who are sanctioned legislators in the Congress of the United States. So it isn't like I'm an apologist for Vladimir Putin. They got me on the sanctions list and all the rest. But I, I, I just, um, I think we need to be somewhat circumspect about what we're doing. I, and I think the more important thing from my perspective is America doesn't have to worry about these things if we're strong. The problem is that we are now weak. We are both weak in terms of how we're conducting our foreign policy. All you have to do is look at the disastrous pullout from Afghanistan. Something like that has not happened since Vietnam. It showed us as being weak. But more importantly, when President Biden said, we're no longer going to be energy independent, which is what he was basically saying by shutting down the Keystone Pipeline, very first action that he took as president on January 20th of 2021, when he announced that, that showed our adversaries that America was going to be weak. America cannot be strong unless we are energy independent. And also, if we are um, saying we're going to use our military in an appropriate manner and that we are going to project strength. We did not project strength when we left Af Afghanistan, left $85 billion worth of war material behind. I think that we need to renew that strength first and then the bad guys around the world will show respect for us. Congressman, one of the things that uh, your constituents may not know is that your office can assist them in working with federal agencies like Social Security or the IRS. In one recent example, you helped reunite a family when the husband's visa was improperly denied. Tell us that story briefly, and how can constituents go about asking for help? I give all the credit to my staff in regards to that, because that call does not go to me. It goes to my staff first. And, uh, you know, the only time that stuff gets to me is if there are continued problems, and then they need to call me in. But anyhow, my staff, um, they made the calls um, um, to immigration, and they dealt with the details of the case and why this denial or delay was going on, and they were able to cut through the red tape and be able to get them the appropriate uh, visa materials for them to be able to do that. We deal with these issues all the time, whether it's visas, IRS, um, certainly veterans issues. I can't tell you how many veterans that um, uh, oftentimes have not gotten as much benefits as they should you know, sometimes they receive 20% or 40%, you know, disability, something like that. And some of them are due more than that. Um, my staff has been really good about going to bat for those that deserve to have a higher disability rating. And we've really been able to help out a lot of veterans in that way. So people should contact us. <laughs> if you've got a problem with a federal agency, contact us, 715-298-9344, and um, we, will, um, we will go to bat for you. This past week, you had a couple of listening sessions in the district. Uh, highlights from those? Yeah, we had um, – I try to do these at least quarterly. It doesn't always work out that way, but I try to do them quarterly. We wanted to do uh, ones right away after the start of Congress here for the 118th, but we were in Eagle River, Florence. We went to Mole Lake in Forest County on Monday. And, and by the way, great turnout in spite of the weather. If you remember Monday, 
<laughs> a lot of ice on the roads. I couldn't believe the number of people that showed up, which was really heartening. And then the same thing the following day, we went to Ladysmith, Amory, Webster, and Cable. So we were all over northern Wisconsin. Um, primary issues people are talking about um, education and a lot of people, uh, parents concerned about um, woke policies that they're seeing in uh, their kids' schools. Uh, we heard a lot about the border. We heard some about the Ukraine. Um, so those are really some of the big issues that um, that people were uh, uh, bringing up. We actually had um, a couple farmers show up in Amory, and I was really glad to hear from them in regards to the farm bill because the farm bill comes up. It's um, reauthorized every five years. This is the year for reauthorization. Really good to hear from a couple dairy farmers over in Amory um, in regards to their thoughts on the farm bill. Uh, you've leveraged uh, some pretty harsh criticisms of the United Nations in recent, recently. What should the United States' role be with regard to this body? Our role should be accountability from the United Nations and that it's serving the purposes of the United States. They are helping breach our sovereignty at this point via an organization. In particular, my criticism has been of the International Organization for Migration. IOM. Sometimes it goes by OIM, Organization for International Migration. But anyhow, um, um, this organization has basically industrialized sending people to the United States here illegally. I saw it in Texas when I was down there over a year ago. I saw it down in Panama when I was there a year and a half ago. They have big tents set up, and they have set up. They are training migrants for what to say when they get to the border. They're giving them remittances. Some of that money is from you, the American taxpayer. So um, I think they need a full investigation, and I think we need to reconsider the money we're sending to the United Nations that goes to a group like IOM who does not respect American sovereignty. I want to go back briefly to, uh, to China China's uh, geopolitical power, human rights record, and supply chain control are some of the top uh, top people's minds right now, especially the Speaker of the House. Uh, he's been very critical of, uh, of China and our relationship with China. Your name has been mentioned in the context of your post to the Judiciary Committee. How does being on that committee support the Speaker's goals with the relationship to China? So first of all, let, let's talk about the select committee that is being set. We voted to set up two select committees in our first week of actions on the floor after um, voting on the IRS agents, and one of them was the um, select subcommittee in regards to the weaponization of our um, intelligence agencies. The other one was a select committee on China. And um, by the way, Representative Gallagher here from Wisconsin is the chair of that. Mm -hmm. um, which is really terrific to have a guy from uh, one of our elected representatives from China that's doing that. And really what we're looking at, if you remember back at the end of the Trump administration, they um, went and forced China to remove their embassy people in Houston because they were stealing our information. We're seeing stories about land being bought near our um, silos, our long-distance uh, missile silos in the Dakotas, where 
Chinese entities have bought land right next to those military installations. You look at their record of human rights. You look at what they did in Hong Kong over the last decade. You look at how they're threatening Taiwan. You look at how they're using slave labor in Western China to produce some goods that end up here in America, and I would point to Apple and Nike. Um, all those things are happening, including the um, uh, theft of intellectual property, and that goes everything from seeds that we grow in agriculture to whatever you name. And um, I think it's really time for a thorough review of that, and I think it's really good that we're having that select committee on China. Our role in judiciary, I think, is domestic, and we need to... Um, uh, make sure that, especially on the intellectual property side, that they're not stealing um, from American companies. And I would say also it leads back to the fentanyl thing because China has been complicit in bringing the uh, components to produce fentanyl to Mexico and produce that. I, I actually believe that the communist Chinese government views uh, fentanyl as a weapon against the American people. Last week, the Justice Department announced that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms would regulate pistol braces in the same way it treats rifles. Pistol braces are the attachment to guns that essentially could turn a pistol into a short-barreled rifle. That regulation doesn't ban braces or their use. It just treats them the same way rifles are treated now. You've called this unconstitutional and pledged to fight this regulation. Explain that. Um, it's, in effect, a ban by forcing uh, people to go through this whole process um, that it's now a rifle. They are um, making this a ban. I would say to you, uh, for you Harry Potter fans out there, the ATF, Alcohol and Tobacco and Firearms, has become the Ministry of Magic, uh, where they've all of a sudden turned pistols into rifles. Because that's basically what they said. We're, this is now going to be viewed as a rifle. I can tell you at one of my listening sessions this week, a sheriff came to it, presented a letter to me. He said, please send this to the ATF. This is unconstitutional, what they're doing. And I will not enforce this in my county because it is unconstitutional. And it's very clear. What did they do? They said, we're going to become a legislative body. That's what ATF said here. We're going to become a legislative body that um, we are, in effect, writing a law via administrative rule. That's not their duty. They carry out the laws that Congress passes. This will be challenged, and I think it's almost certain that it will get thrown out. Last session, you helped secure funding for a new Sulak project on the Small Shipyard Grant Program. Why are these, uh, uh, why are these important? Uh, so, so what they're, I believe what they're talking, I'd have to go back and uh, check my notes on this, but I believe at the Sioux Locks that they're talking about building another lock through that. And what it will do is give duplication for, you know, in case there's a problem with one. I mean, heaven forbid we don't want the same thing to happen as the Suez Canal, right, <laughs> from a couple of years ago that basically shut down trade through the Suez for a while. And I think uh, having that redundancy I think is really a good thing. You know, another thing that we did in regards to that that helps the Great Lakes here is um, in, uh, we allow private shipyards in one of the provisions that we were pushing through, and it did get enacted into law, to allow uh, private shipyards like up in the twin ports of Superior and Duluth to be able to do, um, to be able to do naval work or military work. They could not do that 
prior to this law change, and Representative Stauber from Duluth and I uh, really worked to get that included in one of the bills, and that now is in law, and hopefully it'll help our uh, help the um, boat builders up in the Twin Ports. PFAS are a big concern still in many of our local communities, including uh, Rhinelander, uh, Wassa's uh, treatment plant just uh, came about with their testing, said that PFAS are gone in our water system. Does the federal government have any plans to help communities mitigate PFAS in their water supplies? The federal government does have a role. In fact, I voted for this bill at the end of last year in the last session of Congress to do more research in regards to PFAS. I think that's really one of the first steps that needs to happen here is to get more federal research on this to see what the dangers are. Let's get a better idea of what thresholds are the appropriate thresholds to set because, you know, while it's been set in Wisconsin by the Natural Resources Board, I believe, this last year, is that the correct way to to do it? And uh, I think it's really important to um, have good research before we – let's make sure this isn't ready, fire, aim. Let's make sure that we're going to hit the target. And that federal research that I voted for I think is an important first step. In the last uh, minute we have, uh, Congressman – Tell us what you're going to be working on when you get back to D.C. So, you know, certainly the debt limit issue is going to be before us, but we're also having our uh, committees are being populated. I'm going to be on, uh, I was on Natural Resources and Judiciary, plan to be on them again, hoping to get a subcommittee chairmanship in Natural Resources. We'll see what happens there. But I think there's two things, two tracks that we need to follow here. One, pass good legislation that deals with the concerns that Americans have, and the other thing is do oversight of the executive branch. And uh, what's uh, what, what's happening with inflation from your uh, perspective? Yeah, so we, we're still seeing this rampant inflation, and we keep hearing from leading economists. They're expecting a recession, though it, I, I believe we've been in a recession, but I think you're officially going to see a recession here in 2023. We can fix that if we just do the right things, and one of those is to not blow through the debt limit. You're listening to Route 51. I'm Rick Ryer, extending a sincere thanks to our guest, Congressman Tom Tiffany. Our producers producers today are Joy Ratchkramer, Ezra Wall, and Kate Springer. Joy and Ezra are our on-air producers today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program as well as our previous programs at wpr.org slash route 51. If you have an idea for a future program, you can certainly send us an email to ideas at wpr.org. We'd love to hear back from you. Next week, we'll be back with another discussion, and we'll hope you'll join us. Until then, we're headed out of town.